Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our text this morning starts with the conclusion of an argument. Paul is talking to some of the Corinthian church who have bought into a heresy. The teaching that there is no such thing as a resurrection. But Paul rightly concludes that if this were so, then everything we believe in is a lie. If there is no such thing as resurrection, if you just die and then you're done, if that's the end, then everything we believe in is a lie, and we are in desperate straits. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. This verse highlights the embarrassment of hope. Think about that for a second. Hope is embarrassing if the gospel is not true. This verse argues that if we have hope in Christ, and there is no such thing as resurrection, that we are fools. And why is that? I mean, you could say, well, it just makes us happier, makes us live better. Why is it that that should be an embarrassment? Well, don't you remember Good Friday? Jesus told us that if we are his, the world will treat us like they treated him. John 15, verses 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christianity makes us different from the world. We bear witness to a life beyond the world. Our God is beyond the confines of this world. And in Him we are witnesses of something greater than and beyond us. If we believe the gospel... We are witnesses for God. John 15, a little bit farther on, starting at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Similarly, in 2 Timothy, Paul promises Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if we are willing to follow Jesus, if we believe the gospel, it puts us on a certain trajectory. It puts us on a trajectory toward suffering. If we believe in the gospel we will suffer for the sake of it. If we will live by it, we will suffer for it. And if we look again at our verse and grant the premise 
that our hope is only good in this life, then we are indeed fools. Why would anybody do what Christ calls them to do if they didn't believe he was who he said he was? That makes them pitiable. We take what we have and trade it for nothing. If our hope is only good for this world. And that's exactly what we've been accused of ever since the beginning of the gospel. The Christians have always been accused of believing a lie and trading what they have for nothing. The Jews think the Messiah crucified is an abomination. That was the accusation of the Jews. How can you believe in a Messiah, a Savior, who dies like a criminal hanging on a cross? It doesn't make any sense to them because of their worldly way of thinking. The Gentiles think it is pure and utter nonsense. What? Resurrection from the dead? Are you kidding me? Nobody comes back from the dead. It's a fairy tale. And that's the world we live in. Hope is hopeless if you give up the premise of the verse. Christianity is dead without Easter. But Paul refuses to give up the premise. He follows this argument ad absurdum in order to make his point. He, he makes this argument in order to make a point. He's not saying this. He, he's not saying that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable in order to give them that truth. He's not saying that that's true. What he's saying is he's, he's following the argument to prove the point that he understands the objections to Christianity. He, he's making this point in order to prove that he gets the other side's argument. He understands where they're coming from. There's a, a Christian philosopher named uh, Dr. Stephen Kraft, uh, Peter Kraft, Dr. Peter Kraft, and he tells a story. He, he teaches philosophy courses in a Catholic university. He tells a story of how he'll pit the atheists against the Christians, and he'll make them argue for the opposite point of view. And invariably, the Christians win the argument. And he'll ask them afterwards, like, why, why did, why did, why did the, uh, he'll ask the atheists, uh, why did the Christians win the argument? And the atheists will say, well, because they're telling the truth. Because they don't believe in Christianity. And so, so they, they, they were agreeing with the arguments that the Christians were making for atheism. And so the Christians win the argument for atheism, and yet they don't believe in it. And why is that? It's because they understand the arguments for atheism. Because if you're a Christian, you have to accept in humility your sin and your fallenness and your fallen way of thinking. You have to wrestle with the arguments of the atheists in humility and look at them for truth. And yet, because God is God and Jesus reveals himself to the world at Easter and in his people and in the Bible, 
His argu- the arguments for Christ are convicting and convincing. The Christians believed in Christ, but they were be- better able to argue the opposition than the, than the opposition was able to argue their own point. They, the Christians would always know what the strongest arguments against Christianity were, though they didn't buy them. The atheists, on the other hand, would put up straw men and false arguments because they had never dealt with the truth that is Christ. Because when you are confronted with Christ, you can't come away without being changed. Paul is no fool. He, he is no fool. He understands that if the, if the resurrection did not happen, we are fools. But Paul's not a fool. He's saying that the, 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 the resurrection happened. And it's only his utter and complete faith in Christ that drives his testimony and his witness. He believes in Jesus because he knows what God has revealed to him. Jesus had stopped him in his tracks and revealed himself to Paul. Paul was fighting against him and Jesus shines his light down on him on the road to Damascus and makes him do a complete 180. Earlier in chapter 15, verses 4 to 8, Paul Paul is giving us the gospel. He says, well, let's start a little bit earlier at the beginning of the chapter. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. That's the gospel that Paul is defending here in chapter 15. He saw it, he was there, it's true. And now Paul goes forth proclaiming this revelation in verse 20 of our text. He's just finished saying, if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, then we are the most pitiable. But, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we have a proclamation of witness. Jesus is alive. God has raised him from the dead. And because he has... Resurrection from the dead is real. And it does exist. And Jesus is the first fruits. So we are not the most pitiable of men. And then Paul goes on to explain this from the scriptures. The explanation for life, as it turns out, is the same as the explanation for death. Verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. By man, covenant head, Adam, death. By man, covenant head, Christ, resurrection. 
All men die in Adam. All men are made alive in Christ. So first, Jesus is resurrected. And since death came to all through Adam as our covenant head, life works the same way. This comparison with Adam, the juxtaposition of Adam and Christ, points to a new humanity. There is a great divide in mankind. And Adam here is symbolic of death, and Christ is symbolic of life. There are two kingdoms in this world, and there are two and only two ways of being human. Fleshly human and spiritish human. There are two covenant heads of mankind, Adam, into which we are born. Christ, into which we are reborn. Adam, into which we are created. Christ, into which we are recreated. These two men are the archetypes of all others, and in order to join either, you must be born into their families. It's a, it's a family relationship. It's an inherited life or death. Adam's kingdom is a kingdom of seeds. And Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of fruit. Seeds die, but in the end, they bear fruit. Jesus' resurrection is proof that all men come to fruition. The text reads, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And this is where the teaching of universalism comes in. So there are people that believe that everybody's saved because of verses like this. And of course, we deny that because of the scripture. And even here we have to explain it. I'm not saying that this verse teaches universalism. We, we, we don't believe that all men go to heaven. On the contrary, there's a dark and a scary side of this verse. Resurrection of the dead means fruition. It means coming into completion. It doesn't necessarily mean eternal life. All men are raised from the dead. All men who are buried in the ground are seeds. But the kind of seed they are determines the kind of plant they will become. And they will either be an eternally glorious living plant that's full of fruit for the glory of God in, in grace and mercy and salvation and forgiveness under Christ... Or an eternally wretched and damned, suffering, miserable sinner who refuses to repent and turn to God for, for that free grace and salvation. But all are resurrected. There, those who die in Christ certainly awake to eternal life, but those who die outside of Him awake too. And because there is a resurrection, there's a day of judgment. God does decipher and judge everything that happens. He is ultimately and eternally and perfectly righteous and holy, and no evil deed will go unpunished. Jesus 
came and lived and died, and God raised him from the dead. And in that, he brought light and revelation and showed all of mankind how he works, what kind of God he is. His life, death, and resurrection reveal that we all must answer to God. Because we don't get away with it. We don't get away with a life of sin and evil when we die. It's not like our suffering is done there if we're not in Christ. But gloriously, in Christ, it is done there. We rest from our work and our labors. We never again will have to fight against sin and evil, our fallen natures. So Jesus comes and he brings resurrection. But the resurrection doesn't happen all at once. Verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. There is a time now, the time in between Christ's resurrection and the final resurrection of all men. Well, we have to wait. But the harvest has started. The first fruits is a reference to the Jews. Every season of harvest, the first crops that they brought in, they would collect and they'd bring it as a gift, as a, as a tithe, as an offering to the temple to symbolize that it's all God's. And Jesus is that first fruits of all of mankind. It is all God's. And, and as surely as the first fruits have been gathered in, the entire harvest will all be gathered in. After the harvest is when God separates the wheat from the tares. But during the harvest, during the growing season of God's growth of His kingdom and His people and His nation, we wait. and We wait and we look forward to that final time. And right now we wait and we look around ourselves and there are times when it appears like our hope is hopeless. It appears like we got it wrong sometimes. It appears like we're giving up something for nothing. Sin can cloud our vision. Faith is necessary because we can't see Jesus or touch Him. Now, nevertheless, by faith we know that He's real. And by the, the witness of the Scriptures and the witness of Paul and the witness of the church and God's people, His kingdom, we know that Jesus is raised from the dead. And because of that, we have a real hope, and our hope is not something to be ashamed of. We don't need to be embarrassed because we act like Jesus is real. We don't need to be embarrassed because we suffer for His sake. In fact, our hope is justified and our enemies need to be shamed because Jesus is real. Our suffering is not without hope. Our cause is real. Jesus is real. And moreover, because Jesus is real and raised from the dead, we look forward and anticipate our own resurrection at His coming. We look forward 
to the day that we get to be in his presence. Paul says, it's better for me to die than it is to live. Because if I die, I get to be with my Lord. I get to be in his presence and my suffering, my work is done. It's over. I get to be eternally in the sweet fellowship with God, the Father, at His side. And I get to spend eternity in praise and glory without all this frustration and suffering and sin and confusion. But God's in control and He has the times ordained for our death. But we don't need to fear death because God has conquered it. Because... And that's what he tells us next. Paul tells us what to expect in the end. Verses 24 to 26. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And now we see that in this interim time, from the first fruits to the end, there is a certain nature of reality, a way that God is working in our world. And that is that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth. He is Lord. All authority is his and he reigns in his kingdom and all rulers derive their authority from him. Jesus brought our attention to this at the, at the trial with Pilate. And Pilate says, don't you know I have authority? To let set you free or authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, you wouldn't have any authority except God had given it to you. But after the resurrection, when Jesus comes back to the apostles and he speaks to them and he tells them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples, the authority that Pilate had derived from God the Father was now bestowed upon Jesus. In fact, all authority was bestowed upon Jesus. And Jesus is king, and he is reigning as a man at the, in the presence of God, establishing his kingdom, exercising righteousness and justice, ultimately. And his ultimate victory is... I have a bunch of synonyms here, so be patient with me. It's inexorable. It's unstoppable, it's inevitable, it's inescapable, and it's unchangeable. Jesus is going to win this war. He must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. The abolishment of death is prefigured at the resurrection, at Easter. But the end has not yet come. We still die. There's still death in our world. In the meantime, Jesus reigns from heaven until there is no more death. And the end comes at Christ's coming, at the accomplishment of all things. And this will be the end of time as we know it. It will be the end of death. And it will be the end, or the culmination, the purpose of all things. When Jesus has accomplished all God's will with this world, and he delivers it over to God the Father. Easter, the resurrection, is the opening campaign of Christ the King in his war over all evil, over all sin, over all demons, over Satan, over death, over all pain, over all suffering. 
Jesus comes out of the tomb, victoriously crushing Satan, the world, and death. And from Easter onward, the story of Christ is the story of victory. Daniel reports to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, but he wouldn't tell the wise men what his dream was. Because he was a smart king. And he thought, if I just tell them what it was, they could tell me whatever they wanted. And I wouldn't know if it was true or false. I, I'm going to test them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make them tell me what I dreamed before I'll believe whether they can interpret my dream. And the wise men started getting a little nervous because it was attached to this little threat to kill them all if they didn't answer him. And Daniel prayed to God and God revealed to him what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And Daniel report, reports to Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and he says that Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue. And it was an awesome statue. It had a gold head and a silver shoulders and arms and a bronze chest and an iron waist and feet mixed with or legs mixed with iron and clay and feet of clay and then a stone was cut out of a mountain and it smoked that statue and that statue was crushed and became as chaff which blew away in the wind but that stone became a mountain, a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. And that was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. And, and Daniel said, and here's the interpretation. He says that the head is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And then, and, the, and, and then the silver part is the next kingdom that would come, or the next empire. And in the end, when he starts talking about the stone, he says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Jesus is that stone. Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders who became the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the stone that becomes the foundation for all things. And he becomes the mountain that fills the whole earth. His kingdom grows and is growing. He is Lord from heaven and he rewards those who honor him. And our hope is certain and we must be bold in our witness of God because he will we will answer for our obedience or disobedience. We are not pitiable because we're victorious. The false and vain hopes of the lost are pitiable. They're miserable worms squirming in their sin. They're blind in their sin. They're dead in their trespasses. They have no hope. And their lives are doomed to be vanity. In the end, only what's done for Christ will last. And since they don't live for Christ, 
they're like hamsters running on a wheel. They're just they're spinning their wheels, getting nowhere. Their world is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It comes to nothing. And in their end, they will be gnashing their teeth as they bow their knees and confess with their tongues the undeniable truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that's no cause for us to gloat, because there but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go each and every one of us. If Jesus had not humbled himself and loved us, we would all be there, spinning our wheels, hopelessly and vainly, condemned to eternal damnation and death. But Jesus did love us, and his love is fruitful. Jesus shows us how, and he commands us to love our neighbors. So go out and share the truth of Jesus, crucified and resurrected, the truth of the gospel. God has crowned Jesus as Lord, and he has deputized you to go out and do his bidding. We should all be like Paul, seeking to be like Jesus. We should all resolve to speak nothing but Jesus. We should all resolve to live nothing but Jesus. In Adam we die, of ourselves we die. But in Jesus we have true, full, and eternal life. And in Jesus we have victory over all things. And we no longer need to fear. Jesus is with us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, is what he tells us. In Jesus we are given the opportunity to participate in his glory. We're given the, the opportunity to do his works in our world. And he works in us, accomplishing his will and directing his war against evil until he has overcome all enemies. And the last shall be death. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. celebrate Easter because Jesus rose from the dead 1,983 years ago. In raising him from the dead, God vindicated his life and established his rule over the earth. God set him up over all mankind as Lord and ruler, king, warrior, and Messiah. But he didn't keep us at arm's length. He has drawn us to him by faith and by baptism. He makes sinners saints and he turns hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. He sends his spirit to bear witness in us and gives us power to fend off the world, the devil, and our own flesh. Here at this table, Jesus feeds us on himself, ever the sacrificial lamb, inviting us to use his strength and his power to do his work. Here we drink the wine of his blood, filling us with the life he calls us to live. Here we remember his mercy and grace, his sacrificial death, 
and the glorious resurrection. Here we proclaim his lordship over all, and we participate in covenant with God. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.